Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Walk Show podcast where we explore the walk of life. This is your host, Walker Neer. As always, the music for the show today is provided by Misha Zarin, so thank you very much, Misha. This week we are joined by podcaster, entrepreneur, author, and psychologist Joe Sanek. Joe originally began as a psychologist but found himself wanting to see if he could find even more fulfillment. Joe then went on to start a Practice of the Practice, which is a program that helps other counselors, therapists, coaches, and influencers who want help growing their business. Joe also helps people launch their own podcasts through the Podcast Launch School. Currently, Joe is working on a book with the working title of Thursday is the New Friday, which explores the ways in which modern American society ended up with our existing work structure and how we can start to think about that differently. Joe is a really kind and warm and fascinating guy who's helping countless people either directly or indirectly, and I'm really thrilled that he stopped by the show. Without further ado, let's get on to the show with Joe. Welcome to the Walk Show Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Joe Sanek, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Walker. How about you? I'm good, man. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, So you actually run a a website and have a podcast yourself, Practice of the Practice. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. So we have practiceofthepractice.com, which is aimed at counselors, coaches, therapists, uh, influencers uh, that want to kind of grow their businesses. And so it could be an in-person counseling practice, online practice, uh, people that have e-courses, membership communities. And then we actually help people now launch their own podcasts. So we now have 14 podcasts we've helped launch uh, in addition to our e-course on how to launch a podcast. And are those are those people that are launching podcasts, are they also typically counselors, therapists, that type of role? or Yeah, or people that are loosely connected. So we have one lady, um, she has the Bomb Mom podcast, and she's a fitness instructor um, that also is really into mindset and habit and um, kind of living your best life. So she's out of San Diego. Uh, and so, you know, she knew us through a counselor that we work with. Uh, but we're attracting more coaches, counselors, people that usually their hourly amount that they're making, they, they realize that to spend an hour learning WordPress isn't worth the two or $300 an hour they're making being a counselor. So, so they're right. like, you just do it for us. We just want to show up and, and launch the podcast. Right, right. That's fair. So you yourself started as a, uh, a psychologist. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I, I took a very traditional route, you know, went to undergrad and grad school, took a year off before I went to grad school to just travel the world for a bit and, and fall in love with learning again, because I had kind of fallen out of love with learning. Um, and then, you know, worked at nonprofits and community mental health centers and launched a private practice, uh, really as just the side gig to make money to pay off student loan debt. And, you know, we'd, you know, I'd make $1,000 over a few months, and then, you know, we'd update a closet or pay off student loans or buy a new mattress. And it was really this kind of side gig thing uh, that, it was going well, but I never had the intent of leaving. Uh, Both my parents worked for the schools. My dad was a school psychologist. My mom was a school nurse. Uh, My in-laws, my mother-in-law, she was a uh, special education teacher. My father-in-law was a computer-aided design teacher. So all of the major adults in my life said, go get a good degree and someone will kind of bless you with a good job. And (laughs) the idea of being an entrepreneur, uh, the only experience I had was uh, in college, I sold vacuum cleaners door to door and it was terrible. You know, they taught me how to sell this $2,000 vacuum uh, in a trailer park to tell people that, you know, this thing's going to make you money. And it was the slimiest, grossest thing. And that's me what business was. Uh, But then when I started my practice, I realized, well, you know, 
just selling a vacuum cleaner, I didn't have any skin in the game. I, I could care less if people had a clean floor. Whereas mm -hmm. when I'm doing counseling, I feel like I'm doing really good work. I'm seeing lives get changed, but nobody's finding me. So I started to learn about SEO and I read some business books and learned about marketing and how to position yourself. And when I applied it to something I actually cared about, I was like, this is really interesting because it's impacting people's lives. And so, mm. so I, I just started growing from there and added some clinicians to the practice and eventually left my full-time job. Gotcha. Well, that's, yeah, that's, uh, that, that's a, like, as you said, a pretty traditional path. Um, <laughs> didn't start yeah. out wheeling and dealing with a bunch of different businesses or something. Um, yeah, entrepreneurship is something that, that I think is a very interesting topic and, and certainly you know, something that, that is, you know, it's not exclusive or anything like that. Um, a lot of people are engaged in it, but it's something that I think has a, a kind of a mythology around it. Um, and in some cases, rightly so, you know, I mean, the, 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 the myths of long hours and, and, and sacrifices aren't really myths, right? Like there, <laughs> there are those things. Um, but there are also upsides to it as well. Like a, a significantly higher upside. I mean, a, you know, working at a corporate job, you can really get as good as you want. And I mean, maybe you promote and climb the ladder, but you're kind of, stuck where you're stuck at least you know year over year kind of thing yeah and i think that's the conundrum that i was in where i was working at a community college it was the highest paying counseling job in the county i had state pension great health insurance both my daughters had heart issues that are now resolved they had open heart surgery and so the idea of leaving that for this wild card of entrepreneurship just seemed crazy um mm -hmm. and so I realized, though, at a certain point that the only way to make more money was to become a supervisor and to work more hours. Um, every year I stayed there, the health insurance costs outpaced inflation. Our raises uh, never kept up with inflation. So I was losing money every year that I was there. Uh, and, and it just became something where I said, you know, do I, do I want to try and leave and potentially fail or do I want to stay and never know? And for me, that question of, you know, I need to leave to, to be able to find, you know, what's out there and see if I could actually, you know, make a go of this thing. Right. Well, so, th and this is, this is a question I've, I've posed to, to other entrepreneurs before. Um, and I'm, it, it's kind of a strange question to some extent, but do, do you think, and again, it's very broad, but I mean, do you think it would make sense if we lived in a world where there were no employees and where everyone was, I mean, obviously people are going to, there are needs that employees fill that would still need to be done. But what if instead of hiring, you know, uh, an administrative assistant, you were, you were working with someone who was acting as a contractor more so. And so they were really their own business. Does that, would that world make more sense or is that too, too radical? No, you know, what's interesting is, you know, uh, one, these questions are all ones that I'm really kind of diving into with the research from my book right now, the working title is Thursday is the new Friday. It's going to be a Harper Collins book, uh, 2021. Uh, but the idea of how did we get to where we're at with employees, with, you know, the 40 plus hour work week. Um, but we say, but, you know, like Fridays, people just like dick around, you know, it's like a half lived day. I have to go to work, but I don't want to be here. So I'm going to treat it like I, it's the weekend. And it, it's like, how much of our life are these half lived days? And so for me, as I entered into this book of saying, okay, I want to challenge this because I, I do a three day work week. I 
at the earliest we'll start at 9 a.m. I'm almost done by 3.30 every day. I spend time with my kids during quarantine on Mondays and Fridays. I'm the homeschool dad and I get to come up with fun activities and we go on adventures. And mm. and so like I get to live the life I want to live. And by slowing down, I actually feel like I can go so much faster when I am working. And so as I approach this book and these thoughts, I, you know, you and I are both fans of Malcolm Gladwell and he goes into this crazy history of like everything. And then it's just like, what? So I, I dug into like, where did the 40 hour work week come from? Where did the idea of the eight hour day? So we actually have to go back to the Babylonians. Um, the Babylonians, wow. they believe there was only seven major celestial beings. There was the sun, the moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and earth. And so those are the main things they said, okay, we should have a seven day week because of that. It was literally the Babylonians just made it up. <laughs> the Egyptians had an eight day week. The Romans oh, had a 10 day week. You know, it, it makes sense huh. that we have a 24 hour day in that a day, you know, the sun keeps coming up, you know, and you know, the seasons for 365 days a year, they, they repeat. Those make sense. The seven day week is completely arbitrary. We made this up. <laughs> and it doesn't fit into the math of like a month or anything. No, right? not at all. I mean, a five-day <laughs> week would make more sense because, you know, 365 days a year. Um, right. And so, uh, and, you know, the months are based on moon cycles and all of that roughly uh, that, you know, get, <laughs> that changes too. Um, and so it's completely arbitrary. So then we say, okay, well, how did we even get to, the, you know, the 40-hour week? Well, for most of human history, people worked every day. If you have a farm – you can't just be like, peace out for two days, cows. Like, I'm not going to like, you know, feed you. you know? Right. And so then over time, what happened was one day a week might come, come, you know, and be able to be given off. Now, there was a uh, factory that was on the East Coast in the 1800s. And they had a very large Jewish population that really wanted Saturday off. And then mm -hmm. there was a Christian population that wanted Sunday off. And they didn't want to, you know, take Saturdays off instead. And so uh, they just said, okay, just take a weekend. Like, you take both days. Uh, at the same time, actually in Britain, people were given only Sunday off, but there's this thing called St. Monday, where the idea was that you could come in at noon or so on Monday because you were so drunk from the night before that they didn't want you to show up. Like, <laughs> there was just all these crazy cultural things that were just like 150 years ago. And like, this is right. like thousands of years ago. This is less than two centuries ago. Right. So then uh, in Chicago in 1886, May 1st, these these protests start where a lot of these immigrants had moved to Chicago to help rebuild after the Chicago fire. And so they're there rebuilding. They're working in the factories and it's worse conditions from the countries that they came from. So they start protesting. And on the first day, there's like 400,000 people in the streets of Chicago. And mind you, there's no social media. There's just posters saying we're going to protest. The next day it grows. The next day it grows. Well, there ends up being this bombing that happens that 60 of these police officers get killed from it. Oh, and, and the only thing these people wanted was an eight hour day and safe conditions. And so an eight hour day starts out as this very dangerous idea that the industrialists did not want to have happen. And there was all these conspiracy theorists. Um, but what happened was the next day nationwide, there was a lockdown. Because they just were like, this thing could erupt. The entire nation could go into chaos over what's going mm -hmm. on in Chicago. So 40 years to the day later, in 1926, Henry Ford institutes the eight-hour day throughout all of Ford for five days a week. It was literally Henry Ford saying, okay, we're going to have an eight-hour day, and we're going to do it for five days. 
why we have a 40-hour work week. He could have done a seven-hour day. He could have done six days. This whole idea of the 40-hour work week as being some kind of golden measure of time and efficiency is completely made up. Just like the seven-day work week where we look at the Babylonians and say, that doesn't even make sense. Henry Ford literally just said, okay, we're going to do an eight-hour day because they were sick of doing 12-hour days for seven days a week. And, and right. so when we say we created this, so less than 100 years ago, the 40-hour work week became a thing. And then it caught on and, you know, took, you know, a little less than that. You know, so by the 50s, we see that it's really caught on that this 40-hour work week. But we made it up. And so then the question to me is, is that the best way to live our lives? To your question, this is like the longest-winded answer. No, no. Should we have employees? Is <laughs> that There's a push and pull there. Because you know, if we just zoom in and I say, okay, when quarantine's over, I want to have someone fold all the laundry that we haven't been able to fold. I'm sick of folding laundry. So I can hire someone and I'll say, I will pay you for this job. You know, we have six loads of laundry, a bunch of little kids' socks that are annoying to find the matches to. Uh, I think it's going to take about four hours to do all of this. I'll pay you $200 to fold the laundry. I don't care how long it takes you. So if it's project-based, I'm going to get a lower quality of folding because this person is going to say, I get $200 either way, right? And so the shirts might not be folded well. There might be all these other things. They might be done in an hour and just made $200 for folding all this laundry. So on the other side, I could say, I'll, I'll pay you $50 an hour. I'll pay you $20 an hour, whatever I choose. They could drag it out for 10 hours to do it. It might be the most perfect folding I've ever seen, but I'm going to pay a ton because they don't have any incentive to speed things up. Well, to answer your question, I think that we need to move towards more of the project based. So the laundry side of it, where I just pay for the project, but we have very clear measures as to what success is. This is how I want my shirts folded. This is, I want, you know, them color coded by the rainbow or like whatever it is that you want for your laundry. Then you can say, I don't care if this took you an hour. This doesn't meet the standards to which I want. And we see a lot of businesses moving in that direction right now. Yeah. Yeah. I know in my own, you know, personal uh, career, I, you know, started out working in call centers and that sort of thing. And, and so it was, it's actually crazy how demanding those jobs are. I mean, for a long time, that's just what I thought work was because that's the only jobs I had had, you know, but I mean, they manage you down to literal seconds of efficiency. You know what I mean? Like if you've got a break and it's 15 minutes and you're gone for 15 minutes and 10 seconds, someone's saying something to you about it. And if they do that very often, <laughs> you're out the door, you know, um, and then transitioned to different types of work that, that is more, as you put it, project-based. And yeah, it, it, it was shocking how different it, it, it felt. I mean, I, I'm absolutely still an employee, absolutely still, um, you know, don't make major decisions <laughs> for the company I work for or anything. But the autonomy that comes with project-based where it's like, hey, if I, can, if I can find efficiencies to get this done quicker, I can buy myself a little bit of time to go for a walk or, you know what I mean? Not yeah. be glued to this. Um, and yeah, like you said, clear standards of, of, of quality are obviously needed. Um, well, it's like that industrial industrialist's fingerprint is on everything. I mean, yes, there are certain businesses that we want it to be done exactly right. If someone makes a car, an assembly line is probably the best way to do that, to make sure every single thing is done correct. You need that rigidity. But mm -hmm. for most businesses and for most employee type jobs, 
uh, we see this kind of creep into, there's this guy named Parkinson, who a lot of people know Parkinson's law, that work will expand to the time given. But he has a few other laws that he talks about, and that's the, the laws of overwork. And so he talks about the tendency for people to add people below them to justify their position and then to expand work to then, you know, get to make it look like they need to to have all these people below them. And so uh, for the same outcome that one or two people may have been able to get. And so he noticed this a good 50 years ago. Uh, but the idea is that we keep adding these layers and layers and then we have to justify those layers through, you know, the TPS report and this extra signature and this extra, you know, all these different things that really don't make things more efficient. Yeah, I'm really curious to see coming out of, well, I say coming out of, I don't know what that even means really, but as the pandemic scenario continues to evolve and we can, we try and, you know, normalize our lives as much as we can again, I wonder how many things that used to be deemed like absolutely critical, super important are going <laughs> to not survive the cut, you know? And I, I mean, ideas, not, not people or anything morbid like that, but um but yeah, because, you know, you like, for example, I was talking with another another friend um, who and I've seen it on social media where there's, you know, nurses, for example, have these regulatory bodies that come into hospitals. And um, if you've got a sticky note on the wall, that's a violation and it's this huge problem. And then the quarantine hits or, or the pandemic hits, I should say, and we don't even have enough you know, masks with filters for these people. And we're like, yeah, well, you know, get in there. And it's like. <laughs> Can we lay off the sticky note problem? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Yeah, well, that, it's interesting because um, that's something that um, Parkinson actually noticed as well, that, you know, you'll go to, say, a typical, you know, county board meeting, for example. They'll spend an hour focusing on, you know, the length of grass that gets mowed in a park. And then they'll <laughs> approve a $5 million budget in 10 seconds. And, and this happens over and over where... You know, it's just a misappropriation of energy, of time, of like what really matters here. And I mean, I think that's a perfect example of, yeah, of course we want our hospitals to be HIPAA compliant. We don't want confidential information on a post-it note. But if you don't have systems set up to help people remember, say, medications, um, then what's that nurse going to do? She, she or he is going to have a workaround. And if that's a post-it note, then the administration needs to work backwards. Say, well, why do they feel like a post-it note is the best solution here? is maybe a part of our own system here. Right, right. Um, so it, it's interesting that, you know, to, to kind of shift gears a little bit back to what we were talking about originally, but with the, the practice of the practice. So do you see, is there is there a, a larger volume of people entering the that field of, of being a, a counselor, a therapist, a psychologist, or is is it more just that 
as technology has moved forward, there's more of a need for people to understand how to leverage themselves in the the modern you know market of online and podcasts. Yeah. I mean, I think when I last looked, and it was probably six months ago, at the Bureau of Labor and Statistics in regards to counselors, therapists, um, it's considered you know a highly competitive in the sense that it's it's a high growth field. I think there's a few factors there that, uh, you know, people are more open to counseling. I think that it has less of a stigma. Uh, people are open to that self-development. And in a lot of states, it's actually a sign of like, ooh, like affluence. You have your own therapist. I have a marriage therapist, an individual therapist, a kid therapist. And so it, it sort of represents something positive to a lot of people. Uh, I, I think that also I'm seeing that a lot of people in general just want to level up beyond just a full-time job. And, and so they're saying, I, I want a side gig and see where it takes off. I, I'm going to see if a podcast works or an e-course or a membership community. I'm sick of having all of my life be in somebody else's hands and decisions. And so in the same way that I was at the community college, I had no control over my finances within that job. I, I think a lot of people, what, whether it's therapists or not, are saying, what, what can I do that I have a skill set that can help the world to make you know, a different stream of income here? Right, right. Um. So yeah, well, and so now here I'm just jumping gears again. Welcome to the walk show. We oh, I love it. <laughs> Inroads all over the place, but um, it's interesting. I was also thinking it was interesting about the, what you were talking about with the 40 hour work week because I actually was always kind of under the impression, I guess falsely, that like all of that stuff was was stuff that was like hard fought by like labor unions to to bring into place, but it really was more at least with the eight hour work week or eight hour work day, I should say, for example, the 40 hour work week. It was more that Ford was just had that level of influence at the time and kind of set the standard. And then that just kind of bled out. It wasn't some meditated chosen thing where I mean, <laughs> there, was... there were definitely unions and protests that were organized by people to get it in the forefront. But I mean, these major protests, it wasn't for 40 more years until someone in power said, oh, I think people are actually going to be more productive if they have a weekend. Um, mm. And so. I think it does point to that, yes, we can have asp aspirational ways that we view society, but if those in power or those that you know really are standing up can't make a case for it as to how it actually kind of helps the bottom line at times, it's harder to sell. I'm not saying that we should throw it out, uh, but you know, if we can't kind of meet those different ways that people think through issues, then it's really hard to get buy-in. Right, right. Yeah, I think that... Um... I think that there's, I think that the the modern era and, you know, social media and air quotes, but, but just the fact that people are, there's just so much more exposure to different ways of life. I mean, that's, that's the thing that keeps happening with this podcast and, and me doing it is I just constantly am shown how, how little I really know about the world. Like there are so many little micro worlds that aren't really micro at all <laughs> that I know nothing about that that people are fully invested in. And I think that in the past, you know, pre pre internet and, and really pre modern internet, you know, web 2.0 or whatever, it was just harder to know about those sorts of things. I mean, not that there was no information available, but you were much more contained to your local community and the people that you happen to know personally. Whereas now there's just so many ways that you can encounter how other people do things. And so I think that kind of creates this, this drive or this impetus for people to want to explore different ideas and want to be kind of curious about how, how they could approach something in a different way. Whereas maybe before we didn't have that quite as much. Well, it's interesting as you say that, that, 
you're actually outlining what a whole bunch of like 40 years of curiosity research has noticed. So well done. <laughs> I mean, so, so like even just thinking about, well, like what are the most successful entrepreneurs? Like what are some of their internal inclinations, things that you know, just naturally come to them? One of them is curiosity. One is having an outsider perspective. And another one is um, moving on things before they're ready. And so as I dig into curiosity research, uh, one of the kind of big arms of curiosity research is looking at when people feel a gap between their values or their mindsets and what they're experiencing, they naturally want to integrate those. They want to reconcile it. So if I've had a belief throughout my entire life that the sky is blue and then one day it turns green for a week, I'm going to go, what the heck is that about? You know, I'm going to Google it. I'm going to research it. I'm going to look for documentaries about it. I'm going to say, is there something in the air? I'm going to get curious. And the same sort of thing happens as we expose ourselves to new experiences and have an open mind around that is our value set, our mindset changes, or it could change it. You have the opportunity, but you have to first notice that there's something inside of you that doesn't match up with that exterior world. Then you have to take action to then discover and reconcile that kind of distortion between the two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. Um, I, hmm, I'm trying to think of how to say it, I guess. Um, the, the, well, I guess actually I'll just take it this, this direction instead. So I, I, I'd mentioned on other podcasts, it's going to, these podcasts, I know I've released one episode a week and I've talked about this book several times. So it's going to look like it's taken me like a year to read this book and it's not that long of a book, <laughs> but I record more frequently than I release. Um, but there's this book called Range by uh, David Epstein, and it it what it's talking about is kind of an argument between early specialization versus late specialization, and and there's kind of this mythos in our culture that that early specialization is always better because you're getting a head start, and the earlier you can lock in, the farther ahead you can get. But what his the research that that David Epstein's done shows, or at least the research he's found, it's not like he's conducted all these studies himself. Um, that's actually not really the case. Um, it turns out that there's a, a, a significant advantage oftentimes to doing more late specialization because you find better match quality. Um, and, and, and then he goes on to talk about the benefits of having a more broad base of knowledge instead of a hyper-specialized one and, and gives a lot of a big variety of examples of how people are able to solve problems through um, through connecting otherwise disconnected ideas or, or knowledge bases. But but it's never the specialists that are doing that, right? Because the specialists can't like look out and see out of their own prairie dog hole, if you will. And the, the generalists are more able to to connect ideas because they're not so entrenched in a certain way of thinking that this is how this problem gets solved. Um, that reminds me of I just recently on one of our homeschool days um, with the girls, they've been really into chimpanzees. So we watched um, the, the documentary Jane um, on Disney plus it's all about Jane Goodall. And what surprised me was the guy that got the grant for the chimpanzee research. He didn't want to go out into the jungles and do it because he thought he had too much of a scientific mind. And so he looked for somebody that had no formal training, had no formal scientific training. You think about some of the very first people that are going to go study chimpanzees and we want non-scientists to do that. Like, wait a second. But Jane Goodall was a secretary and she had always you know, dreamt of going to Africa and she was selected to go. 
And so it's like Jane Goodall, who has this completely different lens, um, when she brings her research back after being in, in um, the bush of Africa for five months, they're like, oh, she's just a woman. She's not trained. She doesn't know what she's talking about. But then they sent a National Geographic video videographer to like capture it all. And it's like, oh, chimps are using tools. Because before that, they thought humans were the only ones that did it. So then, you know, the thing that makes us unique as humans and in the eyes of God is that we use tools, uh, whereas chimps were actually crafting their own tools to get food. And so it's interesting that you say that because I think that's true. That outsider perspective, that outsider approach, I think oftentimes lends itself to these really creative applications that insiders that are too deep into it, just they aren't able to do unless they pull themselves out as an outsider. Right, right. Yeah. Well, and I, and I, and I mentioned that just because I think that it's um, I think what that book advocates and, and what you're advocating, you know, to some extent is, is this idea that, you know, if you have a curiosity about something or if something seem, you know, if what you're spending your time doing seems mismatched, it, absolutely, you're not you're not shooting yourself in the foot to explore other things, right? In fact, more than likely, you're you're going to be enriching your life by trying to explore these different things instead of, you know, every, I've got a hammer and everything's a nail now, kind of. Thing. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's the people that do link those established things together that create something new, but also to everyone seems obvious. I mean, when you think about Uber. You know, they were in Paris during, I think it was a rainstorm or something. And, you know, there were smartphones at the time. There was on-demand video at the time. There was GPS at the time. And they're like, this is ridiculous that we're waiting for a taxi in this weather. Like, why isn't there just like an app that can control all this? I mean, and then when right. it came together, it's like, well, this makes so much sense. Why did nobody think about this before now? Yeah, well, and, and not to go on and on about, about Uber specifically, but it is it is shocking to me how much better uber is as a service than taxi cabs were like <laughs> i mean i used to i used to live in an apartment and i would call a taxi cab and they might show up on the other side of the building because they don't know exactly where my apartment is honk and if i don't come out they just leave and now the driver is out whatever time it took them to get there i still don't have the ride i needed and i'm confused and it's like all of that is solved with Uber. Like none of that had, you've got GPS, you can call them, you can text them. You can say, yeah, I'm the guy in the red shirt on the corner. See me wait. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. It's just so much, it's crazy how much better it really is. And, and, and just to your point, like it seems obvious, but yet, I mean, we did taxi cabs the way we did them for what, 50 years. I don't know how long, but yeah. I mean, it was this really, really long standing industry. Um, so, I mean, people, you know, I started this podcast, I don't know, probably, about a year and a half ago, not quite. Um, and I have people ask me, you know, oh, is it hard to start or how do you start or, or whatever? So talk maybe a little bit about your podcast launch school that you've got. How does, how to, how to introduce people into that? Yeah. So with podcast launch school, uh, most curriculums start with order this mic, set up your room this way. Um, but we actually back up. Um, we don't even get to that till module three. Uh, because we want to help people really understand their why of why they want to start a podcast. And so um, say there's a local lawn care person and they say, I want to start a podcast so that I can get more clients for this local lawn care. A podcast really isn't going to be a good fit because you'd need to have a podcast that attracts local people, which means you'd have to cover local issues, which maybe you care about, maybe you don't. But is there even a population for that for all the time and energy that goes into a podcast versus you know, I'm really good at getting high-end lawn care people. I want to teach people on a national level 
how do you have a lawn care business that's really successful and attracts really high-end clients? There's definitely a market for that. There's a lot of lawn care people that they listen to podcasts while they're mowing, uh, while they're doing things. And so we, we start by kind of saying, here's all the things that you should go through before you even start a podcast. And here's the way that you think through it. Then we actually walk them through uh, an email course design. Um, and in this, we have them write an email course uh, out before they start their podcast. And so this email course is a series of emails that goes out that they're giving away as a free service to their listeners. And so the first three emails are all about basically how society set you up for failure. And so as counselors, for mine, it would be, hey, we aren't taught anything about business. Uh, you know, we go out into the world and, you know, you know, if you feel confused about starting a private practice, like you should feel confused. So I'm normalizing their feelings and their pain. Uh, mm. The next three emails are all around quick wins. So here's some small things that we can do um, to help build trust. Uh, with your audience and with yourself. And then third, what are some habits uh, that they need to instill? And you're really taking them through that pain uh, into the transformation that you're offering through your podcast, through your courses and all of that. Now we start with having them write out an email course first because we want them to craft their message in a way that when they start podcasting, they really understand what their message is. So then we walk them through a three-part formula of the first five podcasts are all solo shows. But these are kind of pillars of your podcast. So the things that you know that you're going to stand on. Um, and so for the Walker show, you've got a diversity of topics, right? Um, but the first five shows might be you talking about your five major interests, the kind of interviews you're going to do, you know, why you love Malcolm Gladwell and those types of books. But then you also are into these other kind of things. And then your next five are typically going to be experts. Uh, they kind of fill in the puzzle pieces. So for the Bomb Mom show that I told you about earlier, Melissa, you're, she's a fitness instructor, uh, but she had a psychologist on, she had a nutritionist on, she had an eating disorder specialist on. Because you know, if you work out too much and you focus in kind of the wrong way, that could border a line on eating disorder. So you want to have these experts come in to say, okay, not only does that podcaster know what they have to say, but they're amongst a community of other experts. And then the next five episodes we suggest is that they do live consulting or coaching shows. So whoever your ideal audience member is, that you do live shows with them to help them work through a problem or issue. So what this does is it shows that, yeah, you have all this information from your solo shows. You, you have something to say. You're not just saying something. You're around experts. So you're at a certain caliber uh, of teaching. And now that actually translates into sounding like a normal human being. Because you know if someone can't picture themselves working with you, either in an individual session, in regards to a membership community, e-course, um, it's going to be really hard for you to sell to your audience. And you want to be able to do that through showing you taking people through that pain to transformation process. Is there, is there, do you think there's a certain set of criteria or a certain set of conditions that a person should be looking for in their life 
before trying to transition to to you know a certain amount of savings in the bank or a, a, a I don't know I, I that I guess money was the only thing I could think of off the top yeah. of my head but just any conditions that should be met before trying to be an entrepreneur or yeah I mean I would start with there's a couple inclinations that that you'd want to work on and kind of evaluate where you're at so I talked a little bit about curiosity uh, the second one uh, that the research supports is having an outsider perspective so we talked about Jane Goodall that sort of thing so if if you feel like you're an insider put yourself in situations where you're an outsider put yourself in situations where you're the minority um, to really understand kind of the things that are drawing you into the world and then the third thing is uh, to to go before you're ready and so so you want to move on it uh, and so this is really kind of the research shows that uh, on one side of the spectrum is speed of implementation of things. And on the other side is accuracy. And so what can often happen on the accuracy side is, you know, we, we think, well, you know, does anyone want to hear what I have to say? And so you get this imposter syndrome. Um, you may get paralyzed by perfection. You may overthink things. So on the accuracy side, you're thinking a lot, but you're taking action very little. Now, on the other side it is more of the speed side. And this might be a little more of like kind of an ADHD side where uh, you're doing a lot of implementation, but you're not really thinking through it, uh, that you're you're doing things at a, at a very fast speed, uh, but you're not able to say, well, what's the plan here? And so people often fall on that spectrum of either high implementation, low thought or high thought, low implementation. A lot of the, the emerging research says that uh, some of the more successful entrepreneurs are people that are more on that ADHD type of side. In fact, there's been some research studies looking at people with ADHD that the hyperactivity and inattention side um, can be beneficial uh, because it makes them less risk averse. And so when change happens, they deal with it better than the average person that gets anxious, worried, depressed. They get paralyzed. Um, and so there is emerging research on that. But I would argue that it's actually kind of somewhere in the middle, more on the implementation side, because I think a lot of us tend to fall on that paralyzed by perfection side. I mean, we're trained throughout all of school for this. You know, you you study for a paper, you you do the first draft, you go to the writing center, you find all the commas you should have put in, you spelled there wrong, uh, you know, <laughs> all those things. And then you turn it in, you get a grade. So we're trained to do something to its best amount and then turn it in throughout our entire life. But that's not how the business world works. Um, it's better to have speed of implementation where you, know, you have a very high action and then maybe medium thought level with it. Um, so even in the lean manufacturing world, there's this idea of plan, do, check, adjust, that you're going to you know, plan something out, you're going to do it, then you're going to check it, and then you're going to change what you did. That, that adapting and changing is part of that process. And it's not a failure. It's just you got new information. Mm. Yeah, so that's it's kind of the, the cliche of the world belongs to the bold, mm. almost right. Like, <laughs> um, but there's there's truth to that, and it's it, because I mean, as you just kind of outlined, I mean, it's to some extent if you if you're just paralyzed by thought, or if you're just thinking of things um, and not doing them, a nothing is actually really changing, right? You're just stuck in imagining it or whatever. But beyond that, the amount of stuff that you learn from doing something and actually trying it versus imagining what you may learn is, is wildly different. I, I shared this story again recently on another episode, so I don't, won't go too deep into it, but a buddy of mine had, and I had tried to start our own business. Um, there's a, a company that's pretty famous called 1-800-GOT-JUNK. It's a junk removal company. And so we copied their business model and lowered the price a little bit and thought, 
how easy can it be or you know how hard can it be we've got a pickup truck and able-bodied people and we'll go get stuff and the job the running that business is that going and getting the stuff in the truck is like 10 percent of that business you know what i mean but in thinking about it ahead of time we imagine that to be the large majority of the work that we would be be putting into the business um but only after going and doing it did did we learn those things and there's just a lot of things that i i probably could have read and maybe would have understood but that i an example of it being like i said our our plan was oh well we'll just lower the price a little bit well what we didn't understand was that when you constantly are trying to chase the bottom price you're also attracting a certain type of client right and then that means a certain type of work atmosphere that you're getting in there's all these things that factor into it that someone could have told me, but I don't know if I would have really understood it in the way that I you know, at least think I do now. <laughs> well, and I think getting that information is, you know, you could have spent two years building a website and doing all these other things. And that, I mean, the tech world has the idea of the MVP, the minimum viable product, like get it out there, get feedback from the customer and then do update number two and three and four. And uh, rather than let's make this perfect product and we're two years in and you know now we can't change it because we have two years of investment in compared to what can we launch in quarter one see what works and then get feedback on it yeah i'm a i'm a, an avid video game player um and and that's something that you really see in gaming especially on on in the the pc side not as much on the console like xbox and, and playstation because a little more locked down but but in computer gaming I mean, I don't, I don't know if there's games that are released that are fully done anymore. I mean, there are a few, of course, but largely they're released in, you know, an early access or beta kind of state. Or even if it's something, even honestly, if it's something that is released as a fully completed game, the amount of updates, I mean, the developers are spending a year or two minimum usually on titles, continuing to update and add things and balance things and tweak things. Uh, and it just, so just an example of what you were just talking about, where it's like, yeah. hey, Let's get it out the door, get revenue coming in that will then pay for us to continue. Well, and then you can put your time and money into the things that your audience cares about. Uh, we launched a right. membership community and did a lot of beta testing. And then when we opened it up to the early access people, uh, it's a you know, monthly subscription model. And so they, instead of paying $99 a month, they got in at $55 a month. But I said, listen, we're going to screw things up. Like we are going to do things wrong. Um, and we went through, I think, five webinar platforms in the first month. I mean, people had signed up for it and then it didn't work on an iPad. Like what mm. webinar platform doesn't work on an iPad? Like, come on. <laughs> like, and then we can do another one and it didn't work on a phone. And then, I mean, finally we ended up landing on Zoom, which isn't perfect, but at least everyone could get on. At least we could do some basics of it. And, and so had I charged the full amount, people would have been like, give me my money back. But I started with, we're going to screw things up. And like one of your duties as an early access person is to say, what did we screw up? And then I could say, what kind of teachings do you want? What kind of e-courses do you want? What do you want that's going to help you continue to grow within this membership community? And then I created content based on what they wanted. And then after I had a good year and a half of content, now I can just say, hey, we have 30 e-courses you have access to. And I built all the you know, top 30 that they wanted. Uh, and so we just built it as we went and said, you, know, you get a free e-course each month. And then you know, now it's, we don't say that. We say you get access to the entire library of e-courses. Right. Yeah, no, that's, a really, that's a really good point that you make about focusing on being able to focus on what your audience wants. Because, again, when you're in the, the planning stage or development stage of something, 
you might spend hours, months, whatever the, you know, the scale of time is, but on, on a, a certain thing that you think is just like, oh man, this is so important. And I've made it so perfect. And then no one even notices, right? Because yeah. it was a detail that they just didn't care about. Um, well, it's like even with launching Podcast Launch School. So we started about nine months before um, working with Done For You podcasters, where they pay for us to launch everything. We have all the back end. We have sound engineers. We have people doing show notes. And you know, we launched 13 podcasts, um, and each are up to 20 episodes or so now. So we have this whole network. By having these people pay a significantly higher amount, um, we were able to learn, like, what do we know? What do we not know? What's the process? How do we walk through that process over and over to be able to automate a podcast launch and have it be successful and have them make money? So we had these highest end clients kind of pay for our learning. And then we created all of Podcast Launch School off of what we learned to mirror that process. We then gave away this $1,000 e-course to our done-for-you people that had already paid money, but they didn't expect to get this e-course they'd get lifetime access to. And then when we launched Podcast Launch School to our very first test group, instead of doing it at $9.97 per person, they got in at $4.97. And, but it said, I said, hey, this comes with strings attached. I think this was my exact like, term on the webinar. I said, first, you got to tell us where we screw up. Like We did our best with these 19 modules, but let us know like what we screwed up or what you need more information on. Second, if we do a really good job and we earn it, we want a testimonial saying this is totally worth your time and money to do this. Uh, and third, it was that, that you would be really active within this group, that, that you would kind of continue to help us refine it. And so we did these live Q&As that we gave as a bonus and all those questions I answered live. And then I had my assistant chop up those answers and put them in there. So there was a live component that all these people had questions, but then it was chopped up and now it's repurposed back into that e-course. And so that they got mm -hmm. lifetime access to the e-course as being some of the founders. So then I'm continuing to grow it in that same mindset as kind of software where it just keeps getting better, but they're not paying anything extra. Right, right. Yeah, that's that that's that's definitely very, very valuable insight. Um and and you know, I think that the the takeaway that I hope people are getting from this conversation is that you should absolutely be exploring your curiosities, exploring different methods. And, and you know, we, we met it in, as so many of the guests I've had recently, we met in Orlando at PodFest. And the guy who runs PodFest, Chris Kermitzos, his book that he gave away is called Start Ugly. It's exactly what we're talking about, right? Um, so the point just being, you know, don't be afraid of, uh, of uh, again, a cliche, don't be afraid to fail. But really, like, just go and, and try and you'll be amazed at how, um, at what, at where the failure actually happens, because it's probably not where you anticipated, um, and how probably more resilient you might th you might be than you might have thought you would. Yeah. Be, you know, go. And I would down. actually argue that the, kind of the top thinkers tend to not even think in pass fail terms; that they view everything as an experiment, that they're gathering information. So, you know, mm -hmm. if I launch something and it falls flat on its face, okay, I have an audience that doesn't want that, or it was overpriced, or whatever. That's information for me in that experiment, and that now needs to shift in a different way. And so, if we can just switch from that pass fail to an experimental mindset, I feel like it takes all that pressure off of saying my ego and who I am as a person is tied up in my work. But instead, 
you know, I'm going to try something, you know, so at every step of the way with podcast launch school, if zero people opted in for early access or five people opted into our webinar where we were going to sell it, or if on that webinar, two people bought instead of we had 70% conversion, like all of those things were indicators before I put a ton of time and energy into something uh, only to have it fail. I can then readjust earlier on because I say, okay, nobody opted in for this. Like what is wrong with this where I think it's going to be amazing and nobody wants it. Whereas if lots of people do, it's like, okay, now I can release this to our affiliates. Now we're going to do a big affiliate push over the next six weeks. Okay. If that goes really well, then we go you know, bigger, we go public. If it doesn't, then we have to say, well, why didn't that like transition into other people's audiences? Uh, and so it's mm. all about doing that testing and experimentation to then adjust before you get too far down the road. Yeah, no, I think that's that's a great that's a great point, uh, and I'm and I'm glad that you you said that because it is important to to frame things appropriately. Um, and I, another book I read here recently was called The Undoing Project, and it's about Amos Tversky and, and Danny Kahneman, which are these two Israeli psychologists that had some pretty significant work back in the, the 70s, mostly I think. I mean, I guess actually Danny Kahneman won a uh, Nobel prize in economics in like 2000 so not just in the 70s anyway um and 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 they that that's a lot of what they explored was it was decision making and and a lot of what they talked about was like the context matters you know like if you give someone like they did one simple example i remember was if a person if you a person needs a surgery and you say there's a 90 percent success rate would you go with it? And they surveyed, you know, a hundred people. I don't know what the number is, but amount of, a certain amount of people. And they all say, yeah, we'll go with it. Or a high percentage of them do. But then if you take the exact same surgery, but the way you frame it instead is uh, there's a 10% chance that you won't survive. Way less people are interested in the surgery, but it's the exact same stat, right? right? It's still 10. But so it, and my point just being, it is, it does matter how it's framed and it can be easy to dismiss that because it's like, well, I mean, I'm, I'm a smart person. I get that 90, 10 is this, it's like, but you don't. And, <laughs> and the path fail thing is important not to look at it that way because it's easy to be like, yeah, I get that it's learning, but in the end, I still didn't get what I wanted. Like, no, it really is learning though. It really is an opportunity to go, okay, now I know that I need to change something else, not that. I have to, to stop pursuing this, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I think I, I forgot about this study. There was another study on college campuses where they looked at cookie sales and they had th these cookies that were $2 each, or you could buy one $4 cookie and get the second for free. Um, and like tons of people did the $4 cookie and the second for free because they're like, ooh, this is a $4 cookie and now I'm getting another $4 cookie. So that's like an $8 cookie instead of two $2 cookies. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, context matters. Um, well, Joe Sanek, I, I really appreciate you coming on the, the show today and, and, and offering us your time and expertise. Uh, the website is Practice of the Practice, uh, also the name of the podcast, correct? Yep, yep. That's the name of the podcast. And then we have podcastlaunchschool.com, uh, and we'll be opening up more cohorts in the future. Cool. And then your book is, is slated to come out 2021, so not not immediately in that the title, the working title, at least yeah, that the, is. Yeah, the working title is Thursday is the New Friday, uh, with the idea that we're not going to live half-lived Fridays at work anymore, and let's just have a four-day work week. Well, I am excited for that to come out, and I will, uh, if I'm still at my employer, take that to them and see if I can convince them. Of well, <laughs> if you need to have a uh, discount on a big old box of them, uh, connect with me, and we'll hopefully get you a whole big box for the whole staff. <laughs> Okay, cool. Sounds good, man. Well, thanks again, Joe. Appreciate it. I hope you have a good one. Thanks.
All right, folks. Well, that's going to do it for the show today. Of course, I want to thank Joe Sanic for stopping by and, and joining our show. Really enjoyed our conversation. I also want to thank Misha Zarens for providing the music. And, of course, I'd like to thank you, the listener, for listening to the episode. I also would like to invite you to listen to my other podcast called Pick Up Your Sticks, which is co-hosted by me and Brett Lindley. Pick Up Your Sticks is a video game podcast where instead of just talking about news and reviews, we really try and dive into why gaming matters and the emotional connection that we have with it. Um, A lot of people think of gaming as kind of a a toy or something that a child does, but I think it's actually a lot more in line with books and movies and uh, TV shows um, that where there's really something that everyone can enjoy. Pick Up Your Sticks is available everywhere podcasts are found, so wherever you're listening to The Walk Show, you can probably listen to Pick Up Your Sticks as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great week. Stay up.